India is this place that's known to me, but distant to me. The Indians I knew were always my parents' generation, right? The uncles and aunts. And I just find that fascination with the youth culture of India, and I don't think I'll ever get to experience it. Because I hate to say it, the pop culture of Bollywood and Tollywood aren't going to show it to you. I think the bias of my lack of being Indian, but being Indian is another thing that drew me into this book. Do you regret that not having experienced that sort of authentic Indian youth culture? But didn't you have like your wild 20s period when you're just roaming the city like a starving wolf? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. I I wish I could recite some of the lyrics of the Duran Duran song right now, but I can't. City and night is a wire. Steam in the subway, earth is a fire. Woman, you want me? Give me a sign and catch my breathing even closer behind. In touch with the ground, I'm on the hunt. I'm personally over the years that is very true i remember meeting at the canline advertising festival nearly a decade ago i've always wondered your thoughts on the advertising industry i don't think you've ever wondered that Ruman. but i will tell you a wretched hive of scum and villainy are we talking about the ad industry or can yes <laughs> well Ryan, have you ever wondered what it's like to be a female South Asian queer advertising writer working on women's hair care products living in a big and bustling smog city crammed into an apartment with several single women while also queer and saddled with a sense of regret and ennui? I wonder about that early and often every day, Ramen. But I will tell you, I can relate to at least two of those things. What about you? Well, I can relate to at least two of those things, but something tells me we are not talking about the same two things. What do you mean, not the same two things? I thought the things that brought us together on this podcast was our intimate knowledge of hair care products. Which I actually did work on for the better part of half a decade. I actually thought it was our mutual sense of regret and ennui. But is it regret and ennui about the same things? I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes who are pretty sure our semi-urban existences are less of a dark and emo indie comic book and more of a sad reality show where we're both waiting to be voted off the island. Oh, that really does suck, Robin. (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) This week, we continue our courageous comics caravan through the alphabet, and we have arrived on the letter K to read Carrie, the 2008 debut Indian graphic novel by Amrita Patel, who's since gone on to become a leading voice in the Indian comic scene, illustrating a number of projects, including a reimagining of the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. In Carrie, we meet the eponymous protagonist upon her surviving a heartbroken suicide attempt, and we follow her to work and at home in the hustle and bustle of Smog City. A marketing and advertising exec who turns her creative eye on the world and herself, she lives a semi-closeted queer life, living with many single women, befriending or romantically rebounding with a business colleague with weeks left to live, and just surviving in a monsoon-drenched city. In deeply drawn black-and-white chapters, we journey through Carrie's crowded loneliness, sleeper success, and death, all in the shadow of her departed partner. The book is a sensuous yet wry commentary on life and love. 
So in my research on the Indian graphic novel scene, this book kept coming up and was unlike anything I'd ever seen. So naturally, I've been looking for an excuse to read it. Ryan, I have a lot of thoughts about this book, but before I unpack my own baggage, how did you actually find it? I found it because you told me about it. But to answer your real question, Roman, which is not that, I really liked it. And there's a- Episode over. There's this wonderful dreamlike quality throughout the entire book even though it's also very gritty and deals with this character's depression and the way she navigates this world, it's actually really difficult for me to articulate why I like this book so much. But it felt like I, I was sort of cast into this sort of dream of of modern-day India, even though I don't think that's quite accurate because she's dealing with very real-world concerns, real-world concerns around her roommates who are like all over the place all the time, real-world concerns about her job real world concerns about her mortality. But I really like the lens through which Kari views all of these things. It's a strange journey that the the book puts you through. Yeah, I I like what you say. I think you said dreamlike because I read it over the course of like three or four nights because they're really heavy chapters. It's a super thin book, but the chapters are thick. Like it's like reading poetry. Not that the, the words are poetry, but like a good poem could be like, 20 lines and it can take you 30 minutes to really sit with it right and every chapter for me over those three nights of reading sat with me and felt like a recurring dream you know like it's like you keep coming back into this universe and dipping into it yeah i couldn't stop thinking about it for after after reading it for a week and it's actually because of delays in scheduling stuff it's been about two weeks since i read it and so resetting my brain to come back into it and yeah, it's I, I after finishing reading it the last night, I, I think I told I texted you. Uh, I decided to go downstairs and like look up interviews with the author and understand what else she's written, and how autobiographical is this? Just like it doesn't hit too close to home, but it's almost too real, even though it's too surreal at the same time. I mean, just talking about the writing. So a lot of it is also sort of it almost feels at times like a novel with with illustrations in certain parts. And the writing is very, very evocative in a way that also creates a sort of dreamscape in the way the character Carrie often sort of personifies certain things. Like, for instance, there's this line on page 34 where she envisions herself as a boatman, like going around cleaning up India, but also evokes Chiron, who is the, the boatman from the Greek myths, who shepherds people off to the underworld when they die. In fact, her friend who is dying of cancer refers to her as, as the boatman. And so it creates this mythological sensibility around Kari, the person, and her position in this world. And there was one sequence where she was talking about how she was ferrying herself through India, trying to clean it up through... Actually, what, what city is this? Is, it, is this Mumbai? It's, well, it, it doesn't... I mean, it, it's obviously she's, supposed to be Mumbai, but she doesn't say, right? It's an amalgam of India. She's she, yeah, she's basically ferrying her way through this, the flooded city, through the filth of the flooded city, trying to clean it up. And then at the end, she takes a shower. And the way it's described, she says, washing the stench off my body when I get back home is a ritual. I can see the stench, eager as mercury, rushing into the drain hole to join the mother bog. And that's just like just such a wonderful and evocative way of describing the way the stench washes off of her, personifying this it almost like it's a creature that's rushing off to join its mother and i i feel like the writing itself just has that has that sort of 
evocative nature. It just really creates a wonderful dreamscape, even even without the pictures. Yeah, it's it's very singular. It's about this one woman's view of her world and the world, but it just it taps onto these broader themes. And some of it, I think you said at the top, it's, is it about modern India? I mean, I guess a no. Like it came out of India. And maybe there's some things that are specifically India, but it doesn't, it just feels like this modern life. And maybe something that is very India specific is we're recording this, it's the middle of Pride Month, and someone from some network I'm part of talked about like stats of queer perception in, in the West versus the East and the laws that have been passed and decriminalization of homosexuality, et cetera. And regardless of where like the, the political structures are of queer existence, in Asia, societally, it's like looked down on. And I, I say this, like this is in that society. Like here, we can have pride parades down the street. You don't do that in India and China. In fact, there's chapters in this book where there's, most people I don't think realize that Carrie is queer. And people come at her saying, oh, you just haven't met the right man. And there's a lot of that. And she just rolls her eyes. And she's living with a bunch of other single women who are bringing boyfriends in and out of their apartment. And uh, I guess maybe that's, uh, arguably, that's probably the most specific Indian thing in the book is what I found. And I'm by no means an expert on Indian society or Indian culture, but I just found it striking. Like this, I don't think this book could be written in America for a lot of reasons. But the, the interesting thing about Carrie also, like she's just really wonderfully defiant. Yeah. Um, and she's also in an interesting position because she's both very much exists within the world. She's both an outcast because... That's how she feels as she's sort of watching her roommates do whatever it is they do. But at the same time, she's not an entire outcast. She's definitely able to have like really meaningful or interesting interactions with the people who surround her. Like they're going clubbing and she feels a little awkward because they try to, there's this other single boy. Maybe they're trying to set her up with him. And obviously there's no sparks flying there, but then she goes to the bathroom and she has like a great sexual encounter in the bathroom. (laughs) And so it's, it's, it's she's not like entirely. It's very under. It's very it's very underground. It's very underground in India. I think. What in terms of her her sexuality or the way the, the... I think yeah I, th- I think so. It's a known thing that exists and it's tolerated, but it's like. But she's very comfort. But she's also very comfortable about it. Like she mm-hmm. doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's 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 something that she doesn't seem to go out of her way to hide, mm-hmm. at all. It's just that nobody seems to notice it. Or Which acknowledge that it exists. That yeah, acknowledge they, that it exists. Right. Yeah. They, I, whether they, whether it's like it, it's unclear whether the people around her don't know, or just don't think about it, or just it's just something that just doesn't pass across their minds, or if they're just mm-hmm. they know and they're ignoring it. And I'm actually, I'd actually mm-hmm. be curious what 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 do you think about that? I, I mean, I think that checks out with what modern Asia is like. Now, to be fair, this book was written in '08. And I mean, a cliche about Asia is the amount of change that happens in 10 or 15 years, just as the amount of change that happens in 50 to 100 years in the West. So who knows what the norms are today? But I mean, to publish a book this much about it, I, it's not specifically Indian, but there's some very specific Indian things in it. And I I was talking to, yeah. yeah, I actually want to just push you on, what what were the specific Indian things? Because this is... Obviously, you're much more familiar with India and Indian culture <laughs> than I am. Yeah, that's not saying a lot. Yeah, yeah. What left out to you? 
India has a feel, and I've only been three times in my life, but you see it in films and movies and pop culture. And I can tell what's authentically Indian and what's not in culture because the, the touch, the feel, the smell of it. And this has that. It just does. Like the, the things, that the, the, the manner of the streets, the manner of the, I don't want to say the pollution, the, the way aunties and uncles talk, the way men and women talk to each other. But then on the flip side, I, I worked for about a year in Southeast Asia with, uh, in Singapore with a lot of marketing and business executives. And that's Carrie's other life, right? And so much of that just rang true. It wasn't the American corporate experience or the American advertising industry experience. It was the Asian advertising industry experience. So it's just like little details that obviously authentically written by someone who's lived in this existence just really popped out. I could like see those rooms. I could see those conference rooms. I could see those apartments. I could see those streets. The cleaning lady, like the cleaning lady who comes in every day and nurses after these, mm. these young women, the, the Ganesh festival. These are all just very hyper-specific things that are authentically portrayed, in my opinion. And then with the darkness on top of it, that is this novel. I was actually really fascinated by the three women, who, well, besides Carrie, the three, I guess, supporting female characters who dominate her life. One is her girlfriend, who only shows up really for like two pages, I think. And then the other two, of course, are her two female roommates. And of course, there are two guys that they are sleeping with. But it's interesting. Those two dudes just like recede into the background. But <laughs> those three women are really vivid. And they have like really distinct personalities. Mm. And I was just impressed with the way they were they were characterized in such a distinct way, but without a lot of quote unquote screen time. Did you, did they leave an impression on you too? Not really. <laughs> so I haven't watched, I, I haven't watched the show girls other than like one or two episodes and all the press coverage of it. And so that might be, it's like, it's a bunch of people shacked up in an apartment in Brooklyn together is, but except it's smog city or which is probably Mumbai. That was just the vibe I got off of it. They didn't really jump out at me. To me, they were not background characters at best because the dynamic of both of their boyfriends, they used to have opposite boyfriends. Like they dated, they've all, not quite incestuously, but all dated each other. It was just a construct in the gimmick of her home life, which is, which is absolutely a setting of her life. There's the office, there's her new girlfriend, the woman who's dying. There's the interactions and social life with her roommates. I mean, those are the three main set pieces, but it didn't really leave as much a mark on me. If anything, the thing that left a mark on me wasn't the girls themselves, but the time that she goes out with the girls or the way their maid treats her versus the other girls, the way the other mothers treat her versus the other girls. So it was always in contrast to the other girls. I guess maybe that's, I I, I do that as part of it, right? Even it's not just about the way those two girls interact with Carrie, but also the way that the world views those other girls who are more conventionally attractive are straight Versus Carrie, who doesn't really give a shit about her appearance, who is almost sort of self-loathing, but who has this incredibly, who's, who's quiet on the outside, but who has this incredibly rich inner life. And, and the way that she is sort of viewed, almost like she's invisible. I think like, it's like the world almost treats her as Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, she's just navigating through and commenting. Not commenting, but like, you're watching her mental critique of the world. Yeah. As she just floats through it. And there's this line earlier where she's talking about her roommates and the way that they interact with her 
as if she's just completely harmless, which like speaks to the fact that they, they view her as sort of like this interesting pet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. She's an anomaly, right? And maybe their token queer friend, even though it's never truly addressed that if all of her friends know this about her, I think her, her work buddy, Lazarus, and obviously the dying girlfriend are the only two people who oh, yeah. truly yeah. know who Carrie is. But they're the only ones who have any real interactions with her. Yeah, meaningful ones, for sure. Because yeah. her apartment is just where she lives and she goes to sleep, right? That so. being said, though, I do like the fact that she calls it the Crystal Palace. I mean, we talked about the fairy tale aspect of the dreamlike fairy tale aspect of this graphic novel. The, the way she sort of characterizes the settings, even though it might be a smoggy, overcrowded one-bedroom apartment, yet she calls it the Crystal Palace. And it's interesting, the first time she depicts it, the first time you see her... It's just actually this sort of like this this collage, this full color collage of these women in these pink dresses. So it's an image that befits the name Crystal Palace. And then, of course, later on, you see that it's a shitty one bedroom and everyone is back to black and white. And everything is sort of like cramped and crowded and gray hued. It's actually kind of interesting because she had this view of what it would be like to live with these women initially and then when she actually meets them it's just she's completely disillusioned and i think the initial introduction of the so-called crystal palace with this beautiful full-colored illustration this collage and then you that, that like is the anticipation of what carrie is going to get and then of course you see the floor plan of this thing and and you're like and everyone's sleeping on the floor and you're like okay so that's that's what she actually gets it's so interesting like india is this place that's known to me but distant to me like i i've only been there three times in my life six early 20s late 20s i've not been back since as a true adult married with kids and it's something i want to do but my time in singapore is when i really got to know indian professionals like people the Indians I knew were always my parents' generation, right? The uncles and aunties. And it wasn't until I worked in Southeast Asia where I got to know people my age who had interests and slept around and went to shows and drank and blah, blah, blah. And I just find that fascination with the youth culture of India. And without ruining anything about a, at a movie that I'm encouraging you to go see, there's something about youth culture in India there. And... I just find this like pride and fascination with it. And I don't think I'll ever get to experience it because I'm a grown up. I'm an adult. I'm an old man now. And so I can only observe it through literature. And because I hate to say it, the pop culture of Bollywood and Tollywood aren't going to show it to you. It's it exists in things like this. And that, that's one. I think the bias of my lack of being Indian, but being Indian is another thing that drew me into this book. But do you, do you, do you regret that not, not having experienced that sort of authentic Indian youth culture? No, I mean, yes and no. Like, I mean, I have cousins there, but I'm just not close with them. And they're my age now, right? They were married with kids. My, my briefest moment interacting was being a professional <laughs> in the marketing and advertising industry where some people were working on hair care products like and, and laundry care products. But uh, And I got to know those people, and I'm, I'm still in touch with a few of those people. I, I don't think it's a regret. It's just uh, regret's the wrong word, but it is something I wish I knew better, right? Like, I... I'm okay not being as Indian and Indian American, right, as I could be, but I I think I'd probably like gel more with these Indians than with the Indian Americans that I don't gel with, if that makes sense. 
even though I'm like defiantly an American and I'm okay with it. But didn't you have like your what your wild 20s period going through college and through the years directly after college when you're just roaming the city like a starving wolf? <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wish I could recite some of the lyrics of the Duran Duran song right now, but I can't. I don't know, man. Like what? This is the problem with episodes about books that we both like I, and me not being a reporter and knowing how to ask questions of you. That's good questions. You have that. You have that's like your, your entire podcast thing. You ask Good questions of CEOs of of modern minorities, but not my friends, but not my not some of my closest friends. No, I don't know, man. Like, is there anything you didn't like about this book? Like, I mean, I have some minor things, but I'm just curious. Like, what didn't make sense about this to you? I wasn't sure the attraction between her and Ruth, and I wasn't sure Ruth is the, Ruth is the dying Ruth woman. is the woman who's had a failed suicide attempt because it yeah that's where everything starts, right? So Ruth, they have this relationship that you don't really see articulated except for one scene. And then one day Carrie sees Ruth on the rooftop and Carrie's on the opposite, on the building on the opposite side, and then Ruth jumps. And Carrie reflexively not be- jumps too. And Ruth ends up on a, in a safety net, so she's fine. And then Carrie, she's saved because she lands in like filthy water. And then Ruth leaves. And that interaction is what sort of begins the book. And you're meant to think, okay, so this suicide attempt, failed suicide attempt, is what's going to define Carrie throughout the rest well, of the novel. So, and, and I think worth, worth noting something, the end of the book closes on a page that says to be continued. Right. So, the, so in the quarantine comics tradition of reading one book that will eventually have a sequel in like 10 to 20 years, this book joins that pantheon. The second bit, and I've read a few, read and listened to a few interviews with Amrita Patel, the creator, then the bookend of this series is going to be the story from Ruth's perspective. But. Right. So I, uh, I, I, I can only. Well, I can only speak to like what's in this first volume, which is from Carrie's perspective. And that was something well, that I was quite, and maybe it'll be answered in book two. I don't know, but. What, what, well, this is where I was going to go. I think the, the nature of their fall is maybe like a metaphor for the existence in the theme of the book, because Carrie, she falls into the bog, into like the fucking filthy water of Smog City. Yeah. And it feels like that's what she's swimming through the whole book. And there's an allusion, I believe, to Ruth early on in the book where Ruth winds up getting on a net, safety net, getting on a plane and going to Flying the west. Away. Right. Yeah. And the net, it catches her and takes her away from the smog city that is India, so to speak. So I, I actually do think like the way they land or in the way they both survive is two very different things. She's stuck in it. Carrie yes, I, I agree. Thematically, it's cool. But from a character standpoint, <laughs> I don't, that's the one thing I'm missing is like, you have these two characters who, Ruth made a big impression on Carrie. I mean, why, why else would Carrie jump when Ruth jumps? But after that, Ruth seems to disappear. And I was looking for some resonance, some, I don't know, some, what, I mean, I guess you can say that Carrie is obsessed with death. She like seeks out that cancer patient client. But I was still sort of missing the why or what was Carrie looking for? What did she want? What does she want? And how does this failed suicide attempt impact 
or affect her desires. I guess maybe that's what I'm missing is a sense of what Carrie was looking for. And because of that, it felt there was like a lack of like dramatic urgency to everything that was happening. And maybe that's also why I fixated on some of the supporting characters because I could understand more what they want and where they're coming from. And Carrie is a little bit oblique to me. But for for me, it's, I like the J.J. Abrams mystery box. I don't, I mean, I What is that again? What is the J.J. Abrams mystery box? So he gives a TED talk about, it's the frustration everyone has with Lost. What's the smoke monster? Where's the polar bear from? Like, I actually don't need to know this. Like, I I, I appreciate not knowing it because it lets me try to fill in the blanks and Uh, wonder. Because I don't think any answer Amrita Patel could give me that answers your question would be good enough. And it's actually better to not know because you just, it's not that you're even filling in the blanks. It's just, it's such a big, deep mystery that actually paints a cloud over the whole fucking book that you don't understand this thing. Yes and no. I there's so one of my favorite novels is The House of Leaves, which is about a haunted house. And we never mm-hmm. we know how weird the house is, but we never know why it is the way it is. And the book poses a lot of questions, but you sort of know throughout the book that you're not going to get an answer. And mm-hmm. I feel like if you structure the book like there is going to be an answer you get the audience expecting an answer and then you don't give them an answer i feel like the audience is going to feel cheated actually sherman alexi wrote a novel a mystery novel where he never solved it and in an interview he's like i probably should have come had given a solution to that because in the beginning i was like i was going to give a standard mystery novel and in a standard mystery novel there is an answer you're telling the audience that there's going to be an answer. And when you don't give it to them, they feel cheated. And I feel actually J.J. Abrams did that because like Lost, promises answers. If you sit with, if you work with me, we're going to get to the bottom of it. And when he doesn't give it to you, when he promises, <laughs> you feel fucked. And so that's why I agree and disagree with the whole mystery box concept that you just set, that you just talked about. Because it, it depends on how you set it up. No, but no promises were made. You're assuming a promise was made, and no I mean, promise was well, well, made. I mean, hold on a second. It, I mean, the promise, it's never like the author's going to be like, and I'm going to solve it eventually, folks. Like, that's never, it's never going to be that explicit. But if you, for instance, begin the book as a standard mystery novel, and you continue down that path, and the character's working through clues like he's going to get to it, then there's this expectation that, indeed, the mystery will be solved. And if you don't do that, you're going to really piss off the audience. Now, on the other hand, I just think that's mainstream what the mainstream audiences want. And I, no, 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 I no, used no. To get, I, no. I know I used to get really frustrated trying to read Italo Calvino. And again, when I just fucking let go that I'm not going to understand what the fuck I'm Italo reading. Italo Calvino does not, that. no, Italo Calvino does not at all set up any expectation for, of a pat answer. Like he's a good contrast. <laughs> Like, Italo Calvino, like, his shit is off, like, laced in fairy tale stuff, like Carrie. So he's not setting this expectation that, like, like all of these cities are going to have, like, oh, if on a winter night's a traveler, you pretty much early on that that shit is not going to have a pat conclusion because he- No, you don't. If you come in at, from a, like, a mainstream appeal, like, the first time I read that book, it, it's like a Terrence Malick movie. Like, if you right. come into it thinking it's going to be an abc 
here you go, bing, bang, boom. It's like, you are going to be sorely disappointed. And sometimes the first time okay. like you need to read this. Yeah. So yeah, I, don't, okay. I don't buy that. David, yet. Okay. David Lynch, you, you, you watch the movie. This is going to be, this is not going to have an easy conclusion. A Dan Brown story. You will. know. Right. Will. Right. Why? Why is that? Because the chapters are so short, I feel so smart as I'm but reading through it. Right, but as you're flipping through a Dan Brown story, right? I mean, there's something in the writing. There's something in the way that story is being told that tells you, oh, we're working towards a conclusion. And the conclusion will be revealed eventually, right? Like, Sure. Versus when you read Italo Calvino, you read a couple of pages, the story stops, and then a new story begins. And you read a couple of pages, the story stops, and then a new story begins. And you realize, okay, this is not going to have... <laughs> any conclusion this is where i have to go along just go along with it so that's what i mean like they the writers are training you how to read it and if you're training them to do one thing i.e expect an answer expect a conclusion and then you don't give it to them that's when the audience feels like the rug's been pulled out from them and not in a good way so i that's that that's my pushback it's not like every story needs to have a conclusion and everything needs to be explained it's you set the rules in the beginning, and if the rules indicate I'm going to have a conclusion, then you need to give it to them. But if the rules indicate, okay, this is going to be a complete dreamscape, it's going to be completely nuts, don't expect a conclusion, then yeah, don't expect a conclusion. But I think it's disingenuous to like set out and be like, we're going to do it. This is going to be a standard detective story with a conclusion at the end, and the mystery will be solved. And then when you don't give it to them, be like, ah, but I'm just trying to subvert expectations. Hey, fuck you. No, you're not. You're just lazy. <laughs> Sorry, rent so, over. No, but like, I and to be clear, I don't think this book is as guilty of. No, okay, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, um, I guess okay. So, so within the context of Carrie, the fact that it opens with ah, our hearts are connected. We have this, and then you have the suicide. It's setting up. Okay, this is going to be a big thing. This attempted suicide is the driving action of Carrie, and. It's really not. It's she Ruth is sort of mentioned occasionally, but ultimately it seems like she's sort of forgotten. And Carrie's life goes on and maybe there's some sort of impact that I'm missing. But again, I I I just missed it. So this is where I do wonder and I couldn't tease this out of all my reading of Amrita this isn't jazz hands. This is literally there's something deeply personal about that opening moment. Some trauma of a loved yeah. one informs this because, to your point, there's no delivery on it. It's just you enter on this thing that clearly is pivotal to the protagonist of the book. And then we just move on to the reflection of the life. If anything, it's just this is the background. This is the table setting. I had a really bad breakup. Now let's go shit on the world. And, and, and beautifully so, right? And to your point, that dissonance. I wonder if it's rooted in something of her, right? Maybe it's not a one-for-one -one existence of a breakup that happened, but it's like something happened to you for you to want to like just, you had to insert that at the front. It's not just a construct for book oh. one and book two. No, but that's my point. I just felt it was set up to be sort of like the driving action, the driving thing that motivates Carrie throughout. Like she, she's missing something. She Maybe she's missing Ruth or she's missing what Ruth represents and she's going to seek that out throughout the book. Or it's going to just sort of inform her actions throughout the book. But I guess that's what I was missing. Because if you cut that part out, the book plays the same. 
And I don't think it should be that way, you know, because it's set up to be so pivotal. So that's, that's my complaint, which is, yeah, I mean, I, I liked a lot. I liked pretty much everything about the book, but it's just, this is one area where I was just like baffled because it felt like an absence. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just ranting though. But maybe that's <laughs> the point. That's the point of this podcast. Well, I, I have to ask, Ryan. I mean, would you recommend Carrie to someone? Yeah, I would. It's just such an interesting read. It creates such an interesting vibe and it transports you to this place that I've certainly never been and you've never been there either. I think comics are like just so powerful in transporting you in a way that movies aren't because movies just keep charging forward, right? You can't, you never had a lot of, you can't sit with that. You can't, you can't manipulate time. I wouldn't say that's always, I wouldn't say that's always the case because there are certain movies that just sort of like, (laughs) yeah, well, there are certain movies that just sort of like put you into this world, but I feel comics are just so much better at it because you can slow down and just wrap yourself in the panels and i feel like carrie yeah. does that and it's not just the art it's also the the writing even just like the captions are just like so strongly written and so evocative it's just yeah yeah, yeah. she's thinking some really cool sentence is this a translation i that i don't know i mean the thing about india is because we were colonized english is as much a first language across the entire subcontinent in fact, there's too many other Indian languages that English is a common denominator. So English could be the first way this was written, probably. I know it's been translated into many other things. What's interesting to me about this book is I've been researching like Indian graphic novels because I was looking about I was looking for coverage on a specific topic and I've read a ton of novels on the topic. But and then in my search, like there is a thriving comic book scene in India, just like there's a thriving, believe it or not, heavy metal scene in India. And then everything else seen, it's India. It's a very big country and there's people with interests that aren't just all Bollywood. But I bought a bunch of books, Indian graphic novels, and Carrie obviously made every list. And it just, for some reason, it was so intimidating. I never chose to read it and I never chose to buy it. And I got a bunch of other ones and they, they got the vibe of India, but they didn't really like speak to me as much. They weren't as beautiful. And I, I regret not this not being the first one I read. Maybe, maybe it's for the better, because had I read this first, everything else would have been complete garbage by comparison, and I wouldn't have given it a chance. But this book just really pulled me in, in a way I was not expecting. And the queer narrative, which I don't, as a straight man, I don't fully understand. And it wasn't even just about that, but it's just that perspective. It's just something, the modern Indian perspective, just the, the beauty of the, the writing. Anyway, long story short, I totally recommend it, and I wish I had read it sooner but I'm glad we read it for this. When's the next book coming out? I don't know. So, you know, same, immediately... Same, same time as Rusty Brown? We should, like, do predictions on which one's going to come out first, like, almost like a an over-under of all of the se- all of the Overdue sequels. But uh, so upon reading, uh, finishing it that night, I stayed up and I watched an interview with her, and I discovered she'd done... One of the great Hindu epics is the Mahabharat, and she's done a really interesting reimagining, and... I've been debating if I want to buy it or not, because I can only buy it directly from India, so it's not cheap. But again, as someone I'm also obsessed with like world religion, this is something I want to read. And she so she went and made these books in the Mahabharat. She did some collaborations with some other comics writers. She's more of a full-time artist in India now, but in a lot of her interviews, she's talked about the bookend to carry. And so I don't know if she's working on it now or not. And, and she's one of those writers that we were talking about before we recorded. Like, I'm glad I have another podcast. I want to reach out to her. Yes, she's an Indian in India, but she is. I don't know if Amrita is queer or not, 
but she's a minority within India, right? So it's, I really want to get to know her writing more and her art more because I, I just find her fascinating. And what's interesting is everyone says Carrie has a very distinct look and feel versus her other work. So what's her other, is her other work more, more literal? I don't know. No, it's not a literal retelling of the Mahabharata. It's no, no, no. Really, I mean, is her other really is her other work more literal? Because this feels very sort of evocative. And I don't um, know. I don't know. I don't know. It's that's again. I'm gonna find out. Having a conversation about this with someone else for an hour makes me like I'm ready to like just click buy. Like enough's enough. I'm just all right. Are you gonna do it? Are you gonna do it on this podcast? Are you gonna click <laughs> buy on this? Yeah. It is. It is in my cart, so I could do it right now. Yeah. So why the hell not? And what's the rest of the Indian graphic novel scene like? How would you describe it? It's the gritty nature of how it reveals India. It's definitely like a lot of black and white and zini. So the original Indian comics scene, there's a couple things. One, which is more like, like Mickey Mouse type stuff, cartoony shit. And then there was there was a, a, a imprint called Amra Chitrakata, which did basically retellings of all the religious stories of Hinduism. And that's actually, that was my first, you ask any Indian person who likes comic books, they all read Amrita In fact, that's informed my view on religion. And there's a Pixar artist who did a short about that. Like you're reading Justice League and you're reading Amrita about Krishna and Ram and Hanuman at the same time. So that was like the dominant force. I've read a few essays on it now. And a lot of modern Indian comics, I guess similar to Carrie that I've read, are just about the modern existence. It, not, not unlike some of the Japanese comics that we read. I can't remember the name of that movement, where it's just like, let's just talk about what life in Japan was like in the 60s, right? Ah, like Before... the Pushman, like push for instance. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that in the comics that I bought and read and been able to get access to. Because again, a lot of these comics aren't digitally available. I've been having to buy them on eBay or convince my library to get them. And to, to be fair, I've only read like five or six, the, the things that top the lists. But again, those those other ones just feel a little too literal and not as dreamlike, not as artistic as as Carrie was. And I'm hungering for this indie film vibe out of out of Indian comics because I know it exists. I know it can be there. What was the other Indian comic we read? Was it Ram? It was by Ram V. What was? Well, yeah. So we never read Layla, Layla Star on this podcast. I did read Layla Star. I didn't. I have. Like I have it. as well. I like. I like Graffiti's Wall, but I didn't like Layla Star. I... Oh, that's right. We read Graffiti's Wall. We didn't read Layla. We both read Layla's Layla Star, but not on this podcast. We didn't talk and about the it. Other yeah. One... yeah, and then the other book we read was Krishna on this podcast, but that absolutely is like a beautiful religious retelling. It's not modern Indian comics about yeah. the Indian experience today. Well, what did you think of Graffiti's Wall? I was not on the podcast for that one. Yeah, it was. It was good it was fine it didn't have the same impact yeah. that carried it. it didn't it didn't and and the, the friend i had the chat with was this kid amitosh my a very close friend's younger brother who i'm very close with and he's just as removed from india as i am more so like he's born here his mom is more indian than mine is but he's not been back right um so we just kind of read it as two youngsters talking about comics it's interesting one of the youtube creators i follow like i contribute money to him on patreon his name is patrick h willems and he actually just did a film essay on bollywood or actually not even bollywood indian cinema so it's not all relegated just to mumbai and there's just so much i don't know and understand about india and it's not the obvious stuff like it is a is a deep culture with people and interests in art and there's a lot of it. I mean, I feel uh, like even if you lived there and grew up there and 
spent your entire childhood and adulthood there, there's probably a lot about India you still wouldn't know. It feels like because it's, it's on such it's on such a massive scale. I mean, right. you could make that statement about America, but I, I, I hate to say it. Well, I, I mean, big, but it's not I grew, that big. I, America's big. I grew up in Modesto. I feel I figured it out in five minutes. No, I mean, it's America's big, but it's not that big. And yeah. that's the thing. It's And I've traveled. I've been to all 50 states. I know people all over this country, and I've lived in different parts of it. I feel like I know America, and most people outside of America know the different zones that we have. In India, you cross state lines and everything changes. Like there's just and and the population is four x the size of America, right? One point x billion. So it's it's mind boggling how little. To your point, there are people in India who don't fully know India, just as much as there's people outside. But we outside of India, at least inside of India, they know everything is different everywhere. But here we create this monoculture of India that is that's not accurate at all. That makes sense. Yeah, that is definitely true. I think a lot of the pop cultural exports, but also sort of the prejudices are sort of what inform our, the Western world's view of, well, not just India, but China and a whole bunch of other countries, especially yeah. ones that were that were once colonies. Yeah. Well, hey, Ryan, I just did it. I, I did buy her, uh, her new book. Oh, he did live on Quarantine Comics. Roman buys <laughs> something from Amazon. Yeah, so it's the Parva duology box set, Adi Parva and Saptic. It's funny, there's another thing from India that I bought recently. It's a, it's a book from India, but it was Osama Tezuka, the famed grand, grandfather or father of manga, who in late in life was a devout Buddhist. And he did a, a, multi-volume, a multi-volume series on the life of Buddha, or Buddha, the Buddha series. And I remember something about reading an article about it, talking with someone about it, and looking it up on eBay. And it's like, wow, I'm about to buy this thing from India. And it's like the weirdest, like you buy something on Amazon here and it just, it's coming from a warehouse in Kentucky or New Jersey, but to literally, I know I am pressing a button and in a, like the button has been pressed. Someone in India is going to get something and it's going to get wrapped up into a box and something from India is going to arrive in about seven days. And that blows my mind still. (laughs) All right. Well here, let me know when it arrives and we'll, we'll create a special quarantine comics episode. Of the unboxing. Of the unboxing. Exactly. So, Ryan, I have a really important question that I got to ask you. What is the question? Well, what are we reading next week? Because now you're not going to (laughs) know. Well, I think we settled on Love and Rockets by the Hernandez brothers, right? Here's what's funny about that. We did originally, and then you and I had a conversation about some book article that I sent you. And the last time we had this conversation after recording, you, you were like throwing love and rockets under the bus for this other book so is it love and rockets again what is the book that would you mentioned it was in limbo the korean american girls coming of age story oh shit i i accidentally typed over it but it's in there okay in limbo so which one i don't know oh, okay well we have to come to a we have to come to make make a decision do we read love and rockets or do we read in limbo so what are why don't you why don't you just read something about both of them right now all right so next week what does that what's the next letter it's l and we're going to read Love and Rockets by the Hernandez Brothers. Yeah. Love and Rockets is an epic. It goes on forever. And we don't have all the time in the world. So we're going to actually be strategic and start at the beginning. We are going to read within the Love and Rockets universe. It, the first book, Maggie the Mechanic. I have no idea what it's about. 
because I only know Love and Rockets by name. But what? We're going to find out next week. So stick with us. And uh... It's not next week. We don't read shit next oh, yeah, week. Yeah. We're like a month behind. <laughs> so that's what we're going to read next. Eventually. 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 Next. So stick with us. Love and Rockets. Maggie the Mechanic. That's for the next episode of Quarantine Comics. Okay. Yeah. So next week... Ah, sorry. So for our next episode, we are going to read In Limbo by Deb J.J. Lee. This is a debut graphic novel. It's about a Korean-American girl's coming of age in a New Jersey suburb, as well as Seoul. Really looking forward to it. It came out really recently, actually, just, just a few months ago. So it's a debut. It's a new book. And that's next time on Quarantine Comics. We've been reading a lot of books about young women. <laughs> well, fortunately, after that, for M, we're going to read a book about the Holocaust. So, <laughs> so that'll really perk you up, Robin. That's, that's what this podcast does to me. Perks me up. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. Night is a wire, steam in the subway, earth is a fire. Woman, you want me, give me a sign and catch my breathing even closer behind. In touch with the ground, I'm on the hunt, I'm after you. I smell like I sound. I'm lost in a crowd And I'm hungry like the wolves I straddle the line In discarded rhyme I'm on the hunt I'm after you My mouth is alive With juices like wine And I'm hungry like the Close to hide, I'll be upon you by the moonlight side. Well, high blood drumming on your skin, it's so tight. You feel my heat, I'm just a moment behind.